Those words of the psalmist calling uh, all hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son, speaking, of course, of Christ, uh, the very one that, that Paul, in his letter to Colossians, magnifies, especially in its uh, opening prayer. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to that letter, Paul's letter to Colossians, we're going to be reading tonight from Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. Believe me, after earlier, as earlier in the service, looking wrongly at uh, the liturgy, I'm looking two, three, four times to make sure I'm, I'm on target, and I think I am. I think I have the proper sermon with me this evening. Uh, but it doesn't hurt to pray and ask the Lord to just fill in the gaps, does it? Uh, let's do so now. Let's pray for God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the great gift of your word, and we pray now that you would be the one who speaks as your word is read. May we hear from you. As your word is preached, may we hear from Christ himself, and may your Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts. Grant us then ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that, that truly believe what you have to say to us, your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We read tonight from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, with a special focus on verses 9 and following. Congregation, this is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before, and the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear beloved servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in, in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So far, the reading of God's word. 
Beloved, I come to you tonight from the Saints of uh, Portland, where we have been in a series through this this book, Colossians. In some ways, it appears very, very ordinary, doesn't it? While it was first written in Greek, we now have it in English, and it comes to us as a letter, or at least in the form of an ancient letter, which would commonly identify the letter, uh, rather the, the author, the recipients, along with an appeal to God, just as this letter does. And so what can we say as we turn our attention here, but we have something that is rather ordinary. And yet, anyone who reads Colossians can see that there's something rather extraordinary about it. Uh, the appeal to God the Father, for example. The Lord Jesus Christ. Along with the, these, these personal references to the acts of God and delivering us from the domain of darkness. Qualifying us. The inheritance that he gives. How about the forgiveness of sins? As C.S. Lewis once said, Reading this letter, you might think of fairy tales, myths, except that this one is from God himself, and it's true. So far here in in, in our consideration of Colossians, in these first verses, what we've heard is how God has come through the Apostle Paul Right? He's a, is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God the Father. God is, is, is working through the apostle Paul to write this letter. And he's, he, he does so for the express purpose of grace and peace. To, he's writing to be a means of grace and peace for the saints which he further identifies as faithful in Christ. Their mailing address, if you would, um, is Colossae. Their identity, however, has been established as in Christ. Then what we have in verse 2 is Paul expressing thanksgiving to God for the gospel, which is bearing fruit in them, he says, which is bearing fruit in you, just as it is throughout the world. The fruit of faith, the fruit of love, of hope. I don't know about you, but I I read through a a letter like Colossians, and I'm kind of inclined to to bring this to family, friends, who may be a bit skeptical of Christianity, and, and have them give it another try. While we certainly have made... Um, a mess of things throughout history, and while we may have even made a mess of things in our own lives and our own testimony, uh, there's, uh, why not start again, start fresh? And here we have a beautiful place to begin with these words of Paul to the Colossians. It's never too late to start again. Tonight we can take a fresh look at God's word in Christ 
with these words of Colossians. And as we do, we're going to hear this evening how this letter and its initial thanksgiving continues as a prayer. What begins with pretty ordinary greetings, expressing thanksgiving for God and the gospel, it, it, it grows into a prayer, a prayer that, that focuses in on you. You see that first point in your sermon outline, on you. And it continues with the saints or the church of verse 12. The you of verse 9 continues into the saints or the church of verse 12 until it is finally grounded. This prayer is grounded in the kingdom of verse 13. Our first point then is how Paul prays for you in quotes. Try to unpack that. It's going to be our longest point, and so if it feels a bit long, don't get nervous. The second two points will be a little shorter. Um, and uh, we're, so we're going, to, we're going to look at the context, we're going to look at the content of the prayer, and then we're going to look at the, then we're going to look at the who of you. So stay with me here. Keep your Bibles handy. And let's begin with where the prayer begins, the you of verse 9. And so, well, I should read from your translation. And so, or for this reason, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. We do not cease to pray for you. It's a continuation of thought. I don't know if you're into circling or underlining your Bible, but but you can circle verse 9 there. And, and, and make a connection to verse 4, where in verse 4 he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints and of your hope, you see that, that thought that he introduces in verse 4 of what they heard of you is continued now. As the thanksgiving develops into a prayer, from that first hearing of your faith and love and hope, which he directly associates then in verse 6 as fruits of the gospel. As fruits of the gospel. And I'd like to stop there just for a moment and uh, highlight a a particular point of, of understanding Paul's writing. Or to put it another way, in reading the letters of Paul, if we want to understand the, the different layers of what he is saying, it's so helpful to, to listen for the Old Testament of which he was, which he was catechized in, what he, he knew so well. The Apostle Paul would have memorized large portions of the Old Testament, and oftentimes that will come out in direct quotations from the Old Testament. But more times what we have is, is what pe- uh, teachers call allusions to the Old Testament. I know some of you have it. You might read books so frequently or listen to music so often or TV shows 
Uh, I know my kids on occasion will start saying something and one of the siblings will finish it for them because without even really knowing it, they're quoting something that they were reading or watching or listening to. That's the Apostle Paul. If he doesn't do an exact quotation of the Old Testament, in his writing, in his teaching, he like bleeds, he breathes the Old Testament. We call these allusions. For example, the first example in Colossians is as he appeals to God and the Lord, God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. To us, in English, it doesn't sound like much, but in the Greek, that is theos, kurios. And anyone who knew the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as they hear theos, kurios, it would have brought to them, uh, to mind, the, the, the beginning chapters, the beginning books of the Old Testament, where again and again and again, we hear reference to Kiros, Theos, namely the Lord God. The Lord God of the Old Testament, capital O, capital L, capital O-R-D, the Lord God. I did a quick count in in my Bible and I, I lost track after 200 references just in the first books. Again, in Greek, Kyrios, Kyrios Theos, Lord God, the Creator and Redeemer, now come in Christ, in Christ. Paul is echoing forth the identity of God through the name of God, associating this now in the the God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the gospel. Another example of an Old Testament allusion here is the bearing of fruit we hear in verse 6. That the gospel has come to you, he says, as indeed in the whole world, bearing fruit and increasing. It is an allusion to the mandate which God gave to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply or to increase, to fill the earth and subdue it. When you, when you hear these allusions or echoes of the Old Testament, what, what's being impressed now through this prayer is truly amazing. It's truly, it's breathtaking to consider how the apostle is proclaiming that the Lord God of the Old Testament has come in Christ now to fulfill what was originally given to Adam. The purpose that God gave to Adam and Eve is now being fulfilled by Jesus Christ through the gospel, even as Paul is praying for you. He's saying that you are a fulfillment of God's created and redemptive purposes. It's awesome to think about that. Now, if that's the context of the prayer, look with me at the content of the prayer itself as it's developed in verse 9 with a focus on filling and walking. Verse 9, this focus on filling and walking. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. The first thing that Paul prays for is that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, God's 
will, which he has previously identified with the word of truth, the gospel. It's verse 5. The word of truth, the gospel, is the will that he longs for you to be filled with. And once again, we have this echo, this illusion. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where the word of God comes and establishes the created order. Where the word of God comes and establishes the covenant with, with, with Adam. The word of God, which would reveal the knowledge of God, the will of God for Adam. Now, Christ, you see. Not necessarily the first creation, but now with this, with this great anticipation of the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, the greater coming of Christ. Paul is praying then that you now would not only hear the word of God and believe, right? He's already given thanks for that reality. Your faith, your love, your hope. Now what he's praying for is that those things would grow. That you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let me be as clear as I can here. The first thing Paul is praying for is that you would be filled with the word of God as written in scripture, along with spiritual wisdom and understanding to see its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Not merely to have a knowledge of God's word or the scriptures like Paul, Saul, once had, but to see how, how the scriptures have come to perfect embodiment and fulfillment through the gift of his own son, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is praying for, that you would be filled with the word of God as written in scripture with spiritual wisdom and understanding to see fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And then we have verse 10. The purpose of this prayer is what? It's to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul is saying, I want you, I want you to walk, I want you to live for the greater glory of God. And he doesn't leave us to wonder what that looks like, does he? Sometimes I, 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 we can wonder about that. One of the first catechism things I remember learning was, what is the chief end of man? Well, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I really liked it, but never, never drilled down to kind of get a sense of what that meant until much later in life. Paul doesn't want us to wait that long. He's praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's word and will for you in Jesus Christ and that you would make it your passion to live for his glory. Namely, there are four things. Do you see them? There are four things in verse 10 and following. Bearing fruit, that's the first. Bearing fruit in every good work. Second, increasing in the knowledge of God. Third, being strengthened with all power. 
according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, and forth giving thanks to the Father. That's what Paul prays for you to be filled with the knowledge of his will and word as it comes in Christ and to walk or live for the greater glory of his name. A bearing of fruit. What does verse 10 say? A bearing of fruit, an increasing of knowledge, a strength that comes from him, that cultivates gratitude and joy. Who then is the you? Who is you? Or as my kids said, it sounds kind of like a Dr. Seuss kind of a thing. Who is you? Well, it brings us to our second point, that, that the, the you, as we, as we consider the context of this prayer and the content of this prayer, the you very clearly is, is the church, isn't it? It's not just the Jews, as the mystery of the gospel through Christ is revealed. It's for Jews and Gentiles, for all those who are far off, all whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It is nothing less than the church in Colossae, those of Jews and Gentiles, but not only them. It is for the church in all times and places. That becomes clear as the prayer transitions from you to us. It transitions in verse 13 from you to us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Do you see that? I love the way the Apostle Paul is, is praying here. Uh, for you, the church, and including himself in the number. And what we, ha- what, what, we, what we have developed then is this prayer that the church would become all that God has promised before. Not to overdo the whole Old Testament illusion echo thing, but once again we've got it. In his appeal to the inheritance of the saints and light, uh, this Uh, inheritance, the saints, the deliverance that he prays about. We can't help but think inheritance as the promised land that that he pledged to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and calling them saints, the church saints. The only saints that were known in scripture were Israel, as God called them out of Egypt. He calls them his saints, his holy people. Deliverance. How can we not think about the Exodus when Israel was delivered from slavery, which the prophets, interestingly, the prophets remember that deliverance, that Exodus as coming from darkness into light. You see how the Apostle Paul here is just, is just praying the word of God. He's praying that the scriptures would be fulfilled not only in Christ, now through Christ, and the faith and life of his church. 
that you and we would have the inheritance of the saints who have been delivered from the darkness of Satan and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. Paul then sees all of this from the law and the prophets anticipating Jesus so that through faith in him, Jews and Gentiles have been given the promise, yes and amen in Christ. All of this then is a prayer for the church, for you, for me, for all who hear the word of truth, who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe. This becomes a a pattern of their prayer that the apostles were not content for the giving of faith, you see. They were passionate for the growing of faith and for the fruit of faith and for the multiplication of that throughout the city, the land, and the world. That's what he's praying for. For this greater knowledge of God's word and will in Christ, that we, the church here in all places, would walk and increasingly live for his glory, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of his will, all in the strength that he supplies. And all with gratitude for what he has done. That's where our third point comes in. And really where the the prayer is grounded now. The kingdom of Christ. The prayer finds its ground in verse 13. That he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have Redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Notice the, the personal actions here that, that, that God is, that, that is attributed to God. He has qualified you. He has delivered us. He has transferred. All these personal actions of God himself through the gift of his own son, Jesus Christ. He has delivered us. Through the life of Jesus Christ. He has transferred us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Personal actions of God in Christ. Very personally for you. For me. For us. The church. And the world. You see that's how the prayer expands isn't it? From a personal application to you to the church with a vision to the kingdom of Christ throughout the world. This redemption, this forgiveness of sins that Jesus says must be proclaimed and then the end will come. That's how the apostle prays. And what's really interesting, in our adult Sunday school class, uh, we've, been, we've been studying uh, J.I. Packer's book, The Sovereignty of God and Evangelism, and, and we've been camping out for a little while on the fact that 
Who knew the sovereignty of God better than the Apostle Paul? And yet who among men was more passionate in their prayers than the Apostle Paul? Maybe no Christian has prayed as fervently as Paul, praying for safety and travel, the well-being of friends, praying for government leaders, church leaders, for the salvation of souls. God, save them. Why would he pray like that? Because he knew God had the power to do it, the will to do it, and the means means like prayer. Specifically prayer for the word itself to fill his church. For the word to fill each member. For the word to fill the body and to inspire our walking and living for his glory. Those four things are not throwaway bearing fruit in every good work. That's his prayer. As another teacher has said, this this increasing of knowledge of God's word and will leads to a greater expression of faithfulness and a greater knowledge of his will. Some have said, well, it's kind of circular. No, it's cyclical and growing. A knowing of God leads to a living of God, to a knowing of God, and a living with God closer and closer in intimacy. That's what he's praying for. We would so know the word and will of God that we would be fruitful in every good work, increasing in all that is for us in Christ, strengthened with his power. Do you notice that's the longest aspect of, of, these, of these things, of, of living for the glory of God? It's almost as if Paul knew that our default was to reply, was to rely on our power, our strength, our accomplishments, what we've done, what you've done, or haven't. No, that's not what he does, is it? He doubles down, praying that we would bear fruit, increase in knowledge, being strengthened with all power of his glorious might, And there have the endurance and patience and joy we most need and desire. Found through these personal actions of God applied to our personal needs as his people. So that we can give thanks to the Father. Why? Because we've come to know how he has qualified us to share in the inheritance and hope of heaven. Because we've come to know how he's delivered us and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Nothing less than a prayer for the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ and a passion for the greater glory of God through you, his church, his kingdom. That's what we confess, congregation, when we, when we talk about praying the Lord's Prayer and praying your kingdom come. If you take your sermon outline, we're going to close just with a, a simple application here from our own catechism. As I like to say to the saints of grace in Portland, I don't make this stuff up. We, we find it here in Paul's own prayer. We find it in 
the way Jesus teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you, preserve and increase your church, destroy the devil's work, destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all of this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. Kind of bold of us, isn't it, to offer up these imperatives to the Lord God Almighty? Bold indeed. And just as he likes it, to pray that his word and his will would be done. Congregation, let's pray like that, just as Jesus has taught us to pray. Just as Paul helps us to see, let us continue in prayer for the greater coming of Christ's kingdom. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and how we can understand your will through it. And we join our voices then with Jesus and with the apostle to pray for more of that word within our lives. That we would see your holy word the Holy Scriptures, as a great treasure and gift to us, and that we would make it our life's commitment to read and pray and sing that word so that the, the knowledge of your will, your will would fill us, so that our lives would be increasingly devoted to the greater glory of your name. Oh, Father, that that fruit would abound. Oh, that that knowledge would lead to greater intimacy. Oh, that we would have the strength of your Holy Spirit filling us from day to day. And that we would have grateful, joyful hearts. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.